Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be doing uh, the book of Revelation. This is our third podcast in a series of podcasts that cover Revelation. So if you're just now visiting us for the first time, know that we had an introductory podcast to the book of Revelation, and then in our second, we covered Revelation chapter 1. So if you're just now visiting this podcast, you might want to go back at least to the introduction, because I think we cover some ground there, Bryce, that really helps us understand these chapters. We're probably going to be doing the messages to the seven churches, which is the second and third chapter of Revelation today. Does that sound about right? Yep. Okay, so with that in mind, Bryce, let's start off with big picture. What is the overall message, and why is it important? Okay, there's a great pattern here. I'm going to start with the the introduction. Go back to chapter one, but the JST of chapter one, Joseph makes some inspired changes in the JST. And so if you'll pull up JST Revelation 1 through 8, notice verse 4. Now this is the testimony of John to the seven servants. The book of Revelation is a testimony. We often look at it simply as prophecy, as if it's laying out a timeline of things to come. But it's a testimony. Later on in verse 4, it was given who has sent forth his angel from before his throne to testify. Well, now all of a sudden, we begin to see a marvelous pattern come through in chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 are letters written to each of the seven churches. Now, Mike, before we begin, would you tell us about the symbolism of seven? Seven is a very symbolic number. So, were there actually seven branches only? I don't know. But the fact that we're writing to seven branches is also very symbolic. So, Mike, I know you're more of an expert than I am. What's the symbolism of the number seven? Seven is going to be perfection. John's going to, he loves this number. It's going to be perfection. It's going to be coming unto the covenant. The word in Hebrew, Shiva, just literally means to be perfect or to be finished. And the notion of perfection to the Greek mind is a lot of times it's accomplished or it's finished. So if you had a perfect harvest, it doesn't mean that every grain of wheat was perfect, but it just means we brought in the harvest. And so Matthew 548, we hear this a lot in conference, be therefore perfect. Um, even as my Father which is in heaven is perfect. The invitation by Jesus isn't that Mike Day be perfect in the sense that we would think from a Western mind, but let's take him home. Complete. Make him complete. Let's take him home. Let's be finished in the sense of we're going to finish the mortal journey, which that idea is tied out throughout the whole book of Revelation with overcoming and being conquerors. So seven, yes, there's seven churches, but I think the symbolism here is he's writing to the whole church. He's writing to every follower of Jesus in every dispensation of all time. He's not limiting it to seven individual branches. We're all in it. We're all in it. And there's a pattern here to these seven churches. First, he will tell them something about himself, something we need to know about him. Second, here's something good that you're doing that you need to keep doing. Third, here's something you need to fix. Here's something you're not doing well. Here's something that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing that you need to fix. You need to repent of that. And then if you do that, if you repent and continue to do the good works, here's what I'm going to do to help you overcome. Now, that pattern is tremendous. That's the whole book of Revelation in one pattern. 
here's who Jesus is, and we need to know that. Number two, here are the good things we need to keep doing. Here are the things we need to repent of. And if we do that, here's what God is going to do to help us overcome. Now, you can apply that in every one of our individual lives, regardless of the time period in which you live, but you can definitely apply it in our situation where we're talking about the cleansing of the earth. So what we're going to do is we're going to take each church, there's seven churches, and each time we'll point out, okay, what is he telling us about himself? And let's play with that image. Let's, let's go beyond. This is where chapter one is expanded, that we now need to say, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's almighty? What does it mean that he has a, s- a sword? And then what are the good things they were doing? What are the bad things they were doing as general patterns, maybe not so specifically, but as general patterns. And then we're going to focus on if you overcome, if you do those things, here's what I'm going to do for you. And that's where he's going to begin to introduce several of the symbols that we will see throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. And I might add, Bryce, that these blessings to those that overcome, these are really drenched in temple symbolism. Tremendously significant. Okay, so let's, I'll start, let's just do these one at a time, Mike. I'll take Ephesus. So chapter 2, verse 1, unto the angel, and every time Joseph Smith changes the word angel to servant, unto the servant of the church of Ephesus write these things. So first of all, something he points out about himself. Now, do you remember chapter 1? where we saw golden candlesticks and Jesus in the midst of them and he's holding his stars, he's going to remind us of a lot of those things, some of the things we need to remember. So he reminds us that he is holding the seven stars in his right hand. President Nelson is in the Savior's right hand. My bishop, my stake president, missionaries, his servants are in his right hand and He walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Right off the bat in verse 1, he's saying, no matter what comes, no matter what happens in your personal life, I will be with you. I will walk with you. I will hold your hand. I am in the midst of my churches. So then verse 2, what are the good things he's doing? Notice key words, work, labor, patience, and not being fooled by the imitations. Thou canst not bear them which are evil. You've tried them that say they are apostles and are not. There's so much in the book of Revelation and in Latter-day Revelation about not being fooled by an imitation. Don't be fooled by the building over the tree. Don't be fooled by the woman versus the church. So he's commending them on, you haven't been fooled by the imitation. We've talked about this in other podcasts, how in Christianity— there was a problem. There were so many different Christianities floating around. So if you haven't listened to our podcast that we did on first through third John, that's in there. And John's warning, and I call this the false credentials warning. And this isn't the only time uh, in these letters to these churches where he warns about people with false credentials. And that seems to be a, a problem with early Christianity, but oh, I'm going to say it's it again. It's a problem today. Yeah, it's going on today. So, so this is really relevant. So then in verse 3, you have borne, you have patience, you have labored, you haven't fainted. So all of those gospel ideals about perseverance and faith and enduring to the end and staying with the brethren and staying with his servants and not being fooled by imitations. But verse 4, he says, you have left your first love. And then verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. I love 
um, in the Book of Mormon, again, we're going to turn to the Book of Mormon as often as we can because the Book of Mormon restores plain and precious truths. In the Book of Mormon, there was a group of people fooled by a man with false credentials. His name was Zoram, and they become the Zoramites, and they worship in a way that has led them astray, and Alma's trying to pull them back. And so Alma seems to point out what the first works are. And so I'm reading from Alma chapter 31, where he first goes in among the Zoramites, and he says in verse 9 and 10, where did they go wrong? Where did the Zoramites first start the path that led them down this road of becoming a Zoramite? He said, this is Alma 31, 9 and 10, but they had fallen into great errors, for they would not observe to keep the commandments of God and his statutes according to the law of Moses, neither would they observe the performances of the church to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily that they might not enter into temptation. I wonder if there's a hint here that you've walked away from the daily, weekly performances of the church. Like the basics. The basics, your first works, John seems to be suggesting. I love that phrase, performances. And then he says daily. And I love to ask students, are there things he's asked us to do daily? Are there performances we're supposed to perform daily? How about weekly? How about monthly? How about yearly? And so I think the condemnation to Ephesus is you've walked away from the basics. You've stopped saying your nightly prayers. You've stopped reading the scriptures on a daily basis. You find more and more reasons not to go to church and partake of the sacrament. And it's those first things, those first works that seem to have led the Zoramites astray. So I wonder if the rebuke here is you've let the basics go. You've fallen out of love. Because when you were in love with the church, man, did those things become, it was a privilege to do them. And now all of a sudden we've walked away. We need to remember our first works. And now verse 7, the promise back in Revelation 2. So Ephesus says, I'm going to be with you. Um, I'm holding my servants in my hand. Keep working hard. Be patient. Persevere. Don't faint not. Go back to the first works. And if you do that, here's the blessing. Ready? Verse 7, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. And now all of a sudden he pulls in all those symbols of the tree of life. Lehi, Alma 32, the blessing of fruit to eat. I love Alma 32 where he says, you know, you're, you've got to plant the seed. Your testimony is like a seed that you have to plant, and then it becomes a little tree that needs to be nourished. And if you nourish it, it will become the tree of life that will produce fruit that will fill you. And every one of us can testify of the fruit that got us through a hard time the fruit that helped us in the darkness. If you will grow your tree, then you can partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Fruit that Lehi says, its purpose was to make us happy. And so all of a sudden he brings in all these images about the tree of life, that if you'll stay faithful and go back to the daily performances and the first works and not be fooled by the imitation, you will eat of the tree of life. And by the way, Bryce, isn't this so much the Book of Mormon? Yep. The false tree is the building and the tree of life is God's presence. And the book of Revelation is going to end with a tree where we, it says in there that they hunger nor thirst no more. 
And that is a, a belief that the ancients had, that they would feast with the gods. And so if you read Exodus 24, when they ascend to the top of the mount, they feast with Yahweh. And in section 27, where the Lord says, you're going to eat with me. And in 3 Nephi 20, I think it's verse 3, where it says that uh, Jesus fed them. He provided the bread and the food, and they were filled. And so this is a heavenly promise. And the tree, to me, is we're in the holy place. This is, like I said earlier, this is all temple. So all these promises that we're covering in these uh, churches, their promises are all temple-related. You've clung to the rod, and you're there. So that is Ephesus. Uh, should we do Smyrna now? Let's do Smyrna. Okay, so we got false credentials again in verse 9. People that say that they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. What do we do with this? Um, I just like big picture, like you said. Like Let's talk about this as beware of those with false credentials. And then over and over again, it says, uh, he that overcome, or they're going to get these blessings. So look in verse 7 with the previous church. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the fruit. In verse 11, it says, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And the word overcome, and I love this. And if you have uh, Nikes, you're going to love this. You're going to use this in your family night. I know you are. So here it is. The word overcome means to be a conqueror. It means to uh, be victorious, especially in like a, an athletic event. Remember, this is a Greek text. And the word is nikeo. And it just means to win the race. And if I wear my Nikes, I'm going to win the, the race. I'm going to be a conqueror. And if you think about a race athletic events, like losing is part of the activity. We, we fail. You know, the team that wins the Super Bowl might have a win-loss record of like, you know, nine and seven, but they won the Super Bowl. And I think to me, and this is like big picture, I love this stuff. John is basically saying, uh, you have the best player ever on your team. You're going to win. Just stay with Jesus. And so anyway, I love that. That word conqueror is so cool. So Anyway, that's the promise. If you overcome, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. What does that mean? The first death is when we sin and we are taken, you know, spiritual death is to be taken out of Heavenly Father's presence. And so when we sin, when we come to this mortal life and we partake of sin, that's the first death. But we will all be brought back into Heavenly Father's presence, if for nothing else to be judged. Every one of us will overcome the first death. But whether or not you stay in Heavenly Father's presence or not is the second death. Yeah. So some people will come back into his presence to be judged, and then they will die a second death and be cast out, never to be brought back into his presence again. So the idea of a second death is, I pulled you towards me, but now you're going to leave me. And so what he's trying to say symbolically is, if you will come back to me, you will never be taken out of that place. Yeah, if you will return good. to Jesus— you will never be taken out of his presence, that you will overcome that second death. No one can take you out of his presence and pull you away. That's good. Okay, I'm going to start with Pergamum or Pergamos. That's 2.12, 2.12 to 17. And once again, it's following the same pattern. I, I know what you've been doing. Um, but then he throws in verse 14, you know, you've been caught up in the doctrine of Balaam. And so I want to talk about this briefly. And it's this, if you study who Balaam is in numbers and you really look at the text, everything Balaam is doing is right on. And if you remember the story, he's the guy that Balak is this king that says, I'm worried Israel's coming into our territory. I want you, Balaam, to curse uh, the Israelites. Balaam says, no way, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to curse him. I will only say the things which God will have me teach and say. 
And so over and over again, he's tempted and he even says, if you fill the house with silver and gold, I'm not going to do it. And he's so righteous. And then God comes to Balaam. By the way, Balaam's not Israelite. And God comes to him and says, hey, if a bunch of guys come and get you, I want you to go with them. And so he does. In Numbers 22, 21, it says he gets up in the morning, gets his donkey, and he's going. And then the angel comes to the donkey and stops him. And there's this whole narrative in Numbers 22. And everything the angel tells Balaam to do, he does. And then in the 23rd chapter and the 24th chapter of Numbers, Balaam is true blue through and through. And he gives this beautiful promise about the Messiah in the 24th chapter. And I'm just going to read verse 19 of 24, Numbers 24. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. A star, verse 17, out of Jacob will come. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. Balaam is actually a good guy. But then later in Numbers, in the 31st chapter, he's rewritten as a bad guy. And then from then on, and we don't know why, because every time Balaam talks, he's doing good things. But he becomes an anti-hero. He becomes the guy that was a bad guy. And so in Peter, he's a bad guy. And Jude, he's a bad guy. And again, in Revelation, and we don't know why. If you're someone who's like, okay, I, you've piqued my interest. I want to know more. I give some possibilities as to why, but all of this stuff is outside the Bible. So Bryce, I'm a little bit in the weeds on this one, but I wanted to give a little bit of a background to what is the doctrine of Balaam. Because the doctrine of Balaam in Numbers, Balaam loves Jesus. But the doctrine of Balaam becomes tied up later in tradition with immorality. Now, this isn't biblical, but this is tradition. And so the book of Revelation is quoting stuff that isn't in the Bible. It's quoting texts that don't exist in here. And so if you got your feet wet in some of these extra biblical texts, you can see from a tradition standpoint where the author of Revelation is getting that. Anyway, if you look at the end of verse 14, it talks about this, right? Don't be involved in eating things sacrificed to idols. Don't be involved in fornication. And then verse 16 is the invitation. Repent. Or war is kind of a threat in there. And then verse 17, if you overcome or if you are have your Nikes on, you've conquered, you get a white stone. Bryce, talk about the white stone. There's a lot here. I, let me just do big picture symbolism here because what he's trying to say is, look, I'm going to give you a stone, and the Doctrine and Covenant says that it's a Urim and Thummim, that the celestial kingdom is a Urim and Thummim, and that everyone that makes it to the celestial kingdom—I'm reading from Doctrine and Covenants 130, 10, and 11—that everyone who makes it to the celestial kingdom will be given a white stone, which is their own Urim and Thummim, through which they can see. Now, remember, the Urim and Thummim means lights and perfections. And there's clear reference here to temple, but I'd like to just focus on the idea that I'm going to help you if you will not fall prey to the false doctrines around you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to give you a stone. And that should resonate with Latter-day Saints who know that Joseph Smith was given a stone through which came the Book of Mormon, that prophets in the Old Testament were given stones through which God revealed truth. It's a guiding compass. I will lead you that if you will overcome, if you will not fall prey to the imitations and the false doctrines around you, if you will work and, and stay the course and be patient— I will give you the meat. I'll give you the answers. I'll guide you. Whether that's symbolic or literal, I think he's just simply saying, I'm going to guide you. The Leahona, you know, all of these images of, I will give you something that will guide you through this process. 
And so I'm going to give you a stone and the stone's going to give you answers and I'm going to reveal things through you. You know, whatever that literally means, I think there's a symbolism here that I'm going to guide you through this process. In tradition, the ephod or the, the breastplate that the high priest wore with the 12 stones was a pocket. And in tradition, there was a white and a black stone in there. And so the high priest would ask God a question. If the answer was yes, the stone would be white. And if the answer was no, the stone would be black. And so maybe the white stone has something to do with being permitted to come in God's presence. I like the idea of it being a guide. And the 130th section of Doctrine and Covenants, right? Oh, Urim and Thummim will be given to everyone. So I like this as a guide, a proclamation of innocence. And it's tied to the name. There's a lot of connections between the book of Revelation and Egyptian religion, and we'll probably do podcasts on this later, but there's all this stuff happening in Egypt. Jesus goes there, Moses goes there, Abraham goes there, there's stuff happening. Joseph has worked with some of this with a pro great price. And so in Egyptian theology, knowing the name of the God is having power. And so in the Old Testament, we're always asking God, okay, what is your name? And knowing the name is being permitted to come into God's presence. And so in the 17th chapter of, of John, Jesus is praying to his father and he says, I gave my followers the name that you told me to give them. They're yours and they're going to come into your presence. And so the name can mean a lot of things. Which is right out of the Book of Mormon. The King Benjamin was given them. I'm here to give you a name. A new name. Yeah. So to me also names can represent a change in relationship. So... Uh, when you're married, you receive a new name, the name of your spouse. Section 84, right? When you make covenants, you become sons of Moses and of Aaron. I just want to read this verse out of Isaiah. Okay, so this is Isaiah 56, verse 5. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of the sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath and taketh hold of my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the temple. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. And then verse 8, The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. This is an invitation to come to God and to receive a new name. It's beautiful. And so Revelation 2.17, you're going to be victorious. You're going to get the name. And let's throw, while we're on it, in in the letter to the Philadelphians in chapter 3, verse 12... If you overcome, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You don't go any more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city, which is the New Jerusalem, and I will write upon him my new name. So there's a whole lot of symbolism here that if you overcome, I will put my name on you. Now, that becomes major symbol throughout the whole book of Revelation because there's going to be a mark on our forehead And then when the righteous in Zion show up, the mark that's in their forehead is the name of the Father. And what protects us from all of the evils that are coming, when all of the destruction is unleashed in chapter 9, they're not allowed to touch anyone that has the mark of the Father on their forehead. So when he puts his name on you, he's going to protect you. You're his. And that mark 
is what saves us from the destruction of the latter days, having his name. But it's not just having his name, it's having his glory, his image. And so the Book of Mormon talks about, have you received his image in your countenance? So it's one thing for God to say, hey, you're mine, I put my name on you, but I need to make me worthy of that name. I need to imitate him and represent him. So all of these promises are those of you who live in this wicked world with so much false deception out there and so much wickedness, if you will stay true to the Father, stay true to Christ, they will put their name on you. And if you take that name and act like them and represent them and live like them so that people see their image in you, then you will be preserved from all of the destruction that's coming. I like the way that King Benjamin describes it, Bryce. Like, we're all children of Heavenly Father, but uh, Benjamin says, you become sons and daughters of Christ. Why and how? Through the covenant. That's Mosiah 3 and Mosiah 5. Those verses, to me, really unlock this idea of the name. And then every time we partake of the sacrament, we show that we are willing to take upon us the name of the Son. When I get to those that, that checkoff place, I'll know the name and I'll be able to give it to him because my life matches his and I'll be worthy to enter his presence. Beautiful imagery here, Mike. Okay, so the end of chapter 2, however you want to pronounce that city in verse 18, Uh yeah. I say Thyatira. I, and I'm not going to contend. So I know your works. Beware of that woman. We've got fornication again in verse 20 and 21. Beware of immorality. A lot of this stuff is antinomianism in Christianity. There were a group of Christians called in scholarship antinomians, and they were like, hey, since Jesus has saved us, we don't really have to follow any rules, do we? And it doesn't matter what we do with the body. And so there was a lot of that swirling around. And John says, yeah, don't do that. Not good. But what are the promises? Verse 26 and 27. Once you overcome, he, the overcomers, the Christians, shall rule them, the world, with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. So you're going to rule the world. And uh, I just have to read this. This is so good. This is from uh, Gerald Lund. And he says, one day in Pepperdine at a university, in a university class on the book of Revelation, we ended up in a major discussion about the natural paradox, as the professor called it, found in Revelation 2, 26 and 27. As part of the promise of the faithful who endured to the end, the Lord said they would receive power over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron and break the nations to shivers. Do you see the paradox, the professor asked? The image is that of a tyrant smashing nations to pieces like clay pots, but the promise is given to the faithful. How do you reconcile faith and tyranny in the same breath? And then Gerald Lund writes, I wanted to tell him that the Book of Mormon makes it very clear that the rod of iron is a symbol for the word of God and that the faithful were leading with God's word, not some tyrannical weapon. But since references to the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith were not warmly received at Pepperdine, I bit my tongue. And I love that. To me, Gerald Lund's illustrating a really powerful principle that Bryce is laying out, and that's the Book of Mormon is the key that unlocks not only the book of Revelation, but the Bible. If we read the Book of Mormon and we have that background and we look at verse 27 and we think, okay, the rod of iron, okay, it could be a, a weapon of tyranny or it could be the word of God. And those are two radically different ways to understand all kinds of things, ruling, parenting. If you're a boss, are you going to lead with love? Are you going to lead with logic or are you going to lead with tyranny? And so section 121 comes to mind, like we've learned by sad experience, it's kind of man's disposition to kind of be a jerk and to boss around. And I think the implication is, no, don't be that guy. The saints are going to lead with God's word or 
we could say words of wisdom or words of truth. And I remind you of Daniel's images of the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that rolls and grows and eventually fills the earth. The prophecy is that we will rule the world, not as a tyrant, but as a righteous group of people who have a tremendous influence because they give themselves to the word of God. Um, I also love verse 28. He says, I will give unto you the morning star. The morning star is the last star that goes out when the sun comes up. It's the brightest and strongest star. It's the one that holds out through the darkness. I will be there until the sun comes. I will give you, it's that constant idea that if we are faithful, he will lead us through all of the days ahead of us. I, like I will that. give you a morning star. Now, the morning star's job is to give us light and to guide us until the sun shows up. And then it bows down and sees, I'll give you that morning star. I also love verse 23 that, you know, every time he gives us an insight into himself, he says in verse 23, I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. I know my sheep. I'm here for my sheep. I will be with my sheep. I will guide them through the darkness. Everything's going to be okay. We will rule the world in righteousness in the end. That's good. Okay, Bryce. So we have covered chapter two, and I'm thinking we're going to do chapter three next time. That's great. So just to kind of summarize everything that we've talked about, I want everyone to see the pattern in these letters to these churches. Every time he says, here's something about me that you need to remember. Here's some good things you're doing you need to continue. Here's some things you need to fix. But here are the blessings. Here are the promises. If you will come unto Christ, if you will be faithful to his commandments, you will overcome. You'll eat the fruit. I'll put my name upon you. I'll give you a white stone that will guide you. I'll give you a morning star. We will rule in righteousness. So all of the promises keep coming out. Now, we all need to look at our lives and say, let's keep doing the good things we're doing. Let's fix some of the things we're not doing that we should, and we will overcome, and Christ will be with us this whole time. This is the testimony of the book of Revelation, that we will overcome, and he will be with us, and everything will turn out okay in the end. And with that, we thank you, and we will pick up Revelation 3 next time. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. We're just trying to do what we can to spread light in an ever-darkening world. And so we hope you'll check out our new videos and we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions. <laughs>